0: Hello, welcome. Welcome back to season three, which I left all the way back in December 2021. Book number two has been handed in and I'm looking forward to telling you all about it, but it did take a while, much longer than I expected. So apologies. Book number one, A Dark History of Sugar, after a little bit of a hiccup, will be out in the UK and I think the rest of Europe on the 30th of April North America, 30th of May. Pen & Sword History are the publishers. If you pre-order from them, you get 25% off. I'm gonna be selling some as well. I haven't quite worked out how that's gonna work with postage and packing and things like that. Hopefully I can sell it under the recommended retail price, but we're just gonna have to see about it. Other countries outside of North America and Europe, I'm not too sure about the dates. I had spotted that in Australia, it's out on the 30th of April. So going by UK dates, in Japan, I've spotted it's out the 30th of May, which corresponds with the North American dates. My point is, I'm going to have a lot more time to concentrate on the podcast and the blogs and making stuff for you guys. So let's get started with episode four of season three. We only have to wait three months for this. Here goes. We pick the season up with a chat with food historian Kevin Geddes, about that culinary and style icon of the last century, Fanny Craddock. We chatted over Zoom all the way back in December 2021. Craziness. Kevin's research focuses upon the history of cookery on television, and he started writing a blog about Fanny Craddock called Keep Calm and Fanny On, which looked at the food, life and times of the lady herself. This led him on to writing his first book, Keep Calm and Fanny On, The Many Careers of Fanny Craddock, published by Phantom in 2019. Ah, and this was a great chap. I know you're going to absolutely love it. It was really hard to wheel it down to 40 minutes, that's for sure. As a consequence, there are quite a few Easter eggs on the website. Five, in fact. Now, we talk mostly about her TV career, perhaps more in the latter years of her life. But in those Easter eggs, we talk about her upbringing and early careers, her fabulous shows with a gas board, the shows that she filmed at home, her infamous banana candle and more latterly, the death of her husband, Johnny, and her own mental health issues. Now, if you want to support the podcast and blog and get access to those Easter eggs, go to my website, BritishFoodHistory.com, but I'll tell you much more about that at the end. Since we had our chat, Fanny Craddock was voted best TV chef in the Times newspaper. Delia must be livid. Kevin's very pleased, though. I'll leave a link to the article in the show notes. In fact, as per, I'll leave links to everything discussed in those show notes. It's time for a most enlightening talk about the fabulous and enigmatic Fanny Craddock. Thank you very much, Kevin, for joining me on the podcast. I'm very excited to have a talk to you about, well, not Dame Fanny Craddock, but that's a bit of an oversight, I think, on the Queen's oh, part. Oh, uh,
1: yeah. Oh, gosh, she would have loved that.
0: She absolutely would have loved that, wouldn't she?
1: Yeah, she would have. Well, I think she would have. She kind of aspired to, to all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, well, I finished reading your book, Keep Calm and Fanny on here it is I actually bought a real copy The Many Careers of Fanny Craddock it's so good oh thank you when I was getting towards the end I was worried I was really going to miss Fanny because you get a character over so clearly at least help as much as it's possible I mean we'll get onto that in a moment <laughs> she's quite mysterious um, but for those who haven't heard of her because there's quite a few listeners from the US and Canada and South America you know places other than the UK and A few youngsters, of course. Um, so if someone's not heard of her, um, how could you um describe her or sum her up? That's oh, a tricky she, question to start know, off with. I do yeah. apologize. <laughs> <laughs> You're starting with
1: the most difficult question of all. How, <laughs> how do you describe Fanny Cardica? And it's really interesting because you know, when I started to put the book together, I was like, how am I gonna even describe who she is? You know, to publisher in a proposal like how how can you kind of neatly encapsulate who she was but you know I guess in very basic terms she was a a phenomenon she was a a fabulous creation all of her own making but she's best well known I guess as being a tv cook in Britain and she cooked solidly on tv screens um, in Britain between 1955 and 1975 uh, pretty non-stop Series after series after series. And at that time, you know, the channels were were few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there weren't really that many other TV cooks cooking at the same time as her. So she was, you know, big news and she was a, a celebrity. She made herself... Uh, famous so uh, I guess in today's terms she's somebody like Nigella Lawson she's uh, Jamie Oliver Uh, they've been cooking on TV for 20 years and have got all sorts of other careers as well and and I think she's that sort of person.
0: I only thought of her as a a, a Nigella Lawson kind of Figure because although the approach to food is very different, Nigella's is all about doing dinner parties and how to make it look good, but for the least effort and really for the least effort, Fanny was kind of more ostentatious, but it was cooking as lifestyle.
1: Yeah, I I think she was probably the first person in Britain anyway who kind of tuned into that concept that people not only wanted to learn how to cook better, but they wanted to use food to impress people, whether it was their their own family or Fanny always talked about the the neighbours that you never really liked very much who were coming round or, you know, people for dinner parties. And she used that kind of notion of impressing people and cooking above your station, if you like, using ingredients that other people perhaps haven't heard of, or unusual garnishes and presentations. So the same kind of thing, really. Um, I guess, you know, quite often if you watch Nigella or Jamie, they'll throw in an ingredient that's kind of new, and then in a year or so, the supermarkets are full of it. Fanny was very much doing that in the 50s.
0: I suppose the one thing, if you've not heard of her, and maybe you go on Google and search some images, what's very striking about her his appearance. Especially as yeah, she got older.
1: Yeah, and those those are the images that I guess stick around you know um when she when she first started cooking on tv in 1955 you know those performances are not recorded and preserved and available as as much and some of them are still around but they're they're not available as much so if you do google her you will get some of the, the shows from the 70s where you know she was in her 60s and she'd been cooking on tv for a long time she was pretty fed up with it to be honest and quite short-tempered and um, so if that's if that's the only thing that you find then you probably still think she's quite fabulous and quite entertaining but you know look behind that and you'll you'll find other stuff too which I, I guess again was the, the the point of my book to try and reveal I, I guess the other sides to her um, so so yeah the, the the older Fanny Craddock is is there uh, but the younger Fanny Craddock was um, just as fabulous.
0: So why why Fanny Craddock? Why did she um, stand out amongst everybody else that you were maybe watching on TV? Because you were, like me, a kid of the TV generation, and I grew up on TV cookery shows as well.
1: I grew up in the 70s, um, and I can't say that I remember particularly Fanny Craddock's cooking programmes, but I I do vaguely remember seeing her on game shows and chat shows <laughs> and and that kind of thing. Um, if you do happen to see some of those clips, and those clips around too, um, of her on Parkinson or Wogan or you know anything like that, she kind of lights up the screen and you, you get a sense of uh, what she would have been like if you tuned in to watch her cooking programmes. Uh, but the, the cooking programmes that I grew up watching were things like um, Delia Smith, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. and Farmhouse Kitchen, you know, those those kinds of things. Oh, yeah, um,
0: Farmhouse Kitchen.
1: Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, have <laughs> always been really fascinated by them, um, but I always go back to the classics and I was really just, I guess, drawn to Fanny Craddock, I and mean, I just find her fascinating. But it was probably when she died in, in 93 that, that I became mm-hmm. really fascinated with her because I'd always known about her vaguely and, you know, knew that she was someone quite big, you know, quite a big celebrity. But when she died... Um, there was a bit of a campaign to kind of knock her down a bit. And, you know, it was popular to, you know, say kind of nasty things about her. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the myths and uh things that we believe about her now that, you know, she couldn't cook, that she was a fake, that she was this, she was mm-hmm. that, she was the next thing kind of started around then. And it just didn't make sense to me, I suppose. I, I thought, how can she be all these things, I guess, that are negative that people are saying and also um, someone who cooked on TV for so long? and, you know, had a, a fabulous career, like there must be something about her. So um I just was really keen to to find out more about her, I suppose.
0: The best bit of writing a book, unfortunately, is not writing the book. <laughs> the proposal, <laughs> that's, that's
1: the best part. But the
0: proposal's really good because you find out <laughs> loads of stuff you thought you knew. Um So it must have been great kind of, un, kind of turning over stones and finding all these wonderful things about her life. Some of the stuff you still don't know whether they're even true or not.
1: Yeah, you know, and she um she was very deliberate about that. You know, she she kind of manufactured most things about her life, and even even she couldn't keep up really sometimes with what she'd said or the version of what she'd said. But she was very, you know, as as I say, very deliberate about it. You know, she wanted to create uh, not a fantasy but you know a persona for her- herself and the the complete backstory as well so she was never very honest with herself or, or those that were around her so it- it's difficult to be entirely sure i guess mm-hmm. um that the history is correct but um i've loved researching it and doing my my best job i guess at-, at trying to figure out what what's real and what's not a lot of people claim that they knew the real Fanny Craddock and I I don't think that the real person uh, was ever on show even friends and and colleagues that I spoke to who who worked with her and and lived with her and you know spent time with her are not entirely sure that they ever knew the real Fanny Craddock but to me that just makes her more interesting (laughs) as a person so you know what what can we figure out about her I guess is is really where I started.
0: Um, A way into food though seems to be through her journalism, at least that's how it seems. But essentially, well, she adopted several personas as a journalist.
1: Just after the war, she was living in in Kensington in in London. Uh, I think properties were were quite cheap in South Kensington, so they'd kind of been bombed out a little bit. And she was trying to figure out, I guess, how to fit in. And she she found herself uh, as part of a a women's organisation, And they were campaigning for better food and better access to food. And she somehow got herself involved in this. Uh, It's never really very clear how. And eventually became the kind of spokesperson for for this activist group. I reckon it was simply because she had the loudest voice and could be heard in halls and uh, whatever. But also she, she attracted a fair bit of press attention for it. Um, again through her connections and and led a a little bit to her thinking well instead of being the subject of the stories perhaps I could write some of those stories myself Um, and again she took any job that came her way um, in journalism and she wrote many many columns under many many different names so they were fashion columns they were kind of house housewife tips uh, and some of those columns were were food and and recipes, and she had to very quickly learn to use her experience of making dishes out like, of very little during the war, or or mm-hmm. whatever, or borrowing other people's recipes and pretending they were her own. Who who, who knows? She she had a, a knack immediately of being able to talk about food in a in a way that people wanted to read. It wasn't just. The recipe, the instruction—you know—she had a flair for for writing. So they were interesting columns, and people wanted to employ her and wanted to feature her.
0: I guess that's when the BBC started to get interested in her a little bit. She appeared on a Woman's Hour, is that right? Yeah, those were her first appearances. Yeah, you can't appear on radio, (laughs) can you? But you know what I mean.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she 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 definitely finds herself uh, on radio, you know, talking about some of those food campaigns and better food as a spokesperson for, for, for that uh, women's organisation. But also she she kind of got a, a feel for it, I guess, there, and uh, she wanted to have her own broadcasts and, you know, pitched ideas to the BBC, to, to radio producers mm-hmm. for travel programmes. Um, she was also a travel writer uh, and wrote many travel books travelling around Europe and, you know, what, what to pack in your suitcase and where to visit, those those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to, I guess, bring some of that to radio and, and talk about it, talk about food as well, that she'd found. So she she picked some ideas to the BBC and they gave her, quite reluctantly, I have to say, they, they weren't very keen on her as a person, but they knew that she had something about her and when she recorded a broadcast something sparkled and and people wanted to to listen. So I guess the BBC were not going to ignore that. They they put their own feelings about her to one side and, and give her a shot and she, she never looked back.
0: No, I mean, it seems that she um, kept pitching ideas to the BBC and they just kind of seemed very, sometimes very dismissive of her. Sometimes they might take on board an idea, but very much trim it back to something fairly minimal and not what Fanny wanted. And then there was ITV, sort of almost seems to be tempting her (laughs) where she, because, you know, she wanted to do quite a lot of product placement and make some money wherever she could. She couldn't do that on the BBC. She could on the ITV, but ITV, of course, you know, well, I have a snobbishness about ITV. (laughs) I don't watch ITV. (laughs) You know, you want to be on the BBC. You don't want to be on ITV. So it felt like she was kind of to and fro between the two and the BBC would kind of give her little bits and bobs, but ITV gave her the main work which she didn't really like
1: yeah i mean i I think that's fair enough i think that she you know she started off on the bbc and that was the 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 main broadcaster in britain Uh, but she very quickly was lured i guess to to itv who started their broadcast around about the same time in 1955 and um, she was tempted to to work with them because they liked her ideas, I guess. She was the the star of the show. Uh, some of her early programmes were called things like Fanny's Kitchen and, you know, things like that. So she, she kind of liked it. But she also liked it because they were really keen to also use her husband, Johnny, and he'd been part of her her act, if you like, um, she often called it an act, but they cooked together on the BBC and they transferred that show to ITV, where they both had different roles. So Fanny would take on the food and Johnny would look after the, the wine or, or the entertainment mm-hmm. side of things. And they were really keen to follow up her ideas about using product placement and selling items, I guess, you know, it's a commercial station. So it was an ideal mm-hmm. home for somebody who had ideas to combine food and cooking and a home setting uh, with selling products to housewives, mainly.
0: Fanny and Johnny's act. At this time, was they were, they were Bon Vivre. That's the name that they...
1: That's wanted, right. right. Yeah, that's Wasn't
0: right. It? And uh, it seems that they just got so famous. The papers absolutely loved her, didn't they?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it was quite unusual at the time because um, they were an act and they... They put on plays and, you know, all sorts of things that were connected to to food, as well as just demonstrations. But there was quite a bit of, you know, fun and entertainment between them. You know, they portrayed themselves as a a married couple. They were always dressed impeccably they were always uh sipping champagne on stage and you know again giving off that that vibe of uh successful lifestyle I suppose but also just cooking really interesting things just as an aside really uh, and it was an entertainment she knew that she knew that she was entertaining I guess going going back to her background her you know, of her mother being a, a, an actress and her father a playwright, she'd kind of grown up always looking for some uh, approval, I guess, from an audience that she maybe didn't get at home, but she knew that theatre was maybe the way to do it. And, you know, audiences loved her. They, they just wanted to, to come and see Johnny and her do something, cook something, have a uh, a giggle with them and, you know, hear their stories about their fabulous encounters with other celebrities. And, you know, it's really not so different to Nigella Lawson today. You know, we imagine that that's how Nigella lives her life every day. And, you know, Mm. Fanny wanted you to believe that that's how she lived her life every day. And, Actually, she, she, she did more, more often than not, but that's what she wanted you to believe. And I guess part of doing that was through her performances.
0: And I guess this is when um, the BBC really couldn't ignore the fact that she was popular and she started to get regular shows. Again, I went onto YouTube um, to research her a bit and the one that I saw was um, she was cooking fish, she was cooking mussels. Oh, right. Uh, adventurous cooking. Yes. But um, she seemed to have very much developed her... TV persona completely at this point, yeah. Kind of the this, the striking look, the, as you say, the cooking as as lifestyle. That f- firm talking to the camera and sometimes almost being told what to do. A kind of matronly way of speaking, but a kind way of speaking, I think. Yeah. And I suppose she really started to to not look at British English cooking and to take a leaf out of the French book. So I guess that's when this snobbishness begins to creep in, I suppose.
1: You know, you're absolutely right. She very deliberately tried to be snobbish about it. She genuinely loved historical cooking. She developed a a love for Escoffier and, you know, connected herself to Escoffier. You know, part of the reason was, I guess, that he wasn't very popular uh, when she started to do it. So, you know, bringing someone back, I guess, that, that was there. Part of the reason was that she... Had some sponsorship with the Escoffier Foundation to do some <laughs> do some shows, and she was a very loyal contractee. So if somebody paid her to do something, you know, she she gave it her all. Uh, but also because mm-hmm. people liked it, and she she wove a story that you know she herself had French roots and had learned to cook in the kitchens of French uh, restaurants and hotels when she was a child on holiday there. There's no evidence at all. That any of that is true. But, <laughs> but she believed it and we believed it. And, um, you know, she kind of, I don't know, helped people to reimagine some of those recipes from the past. So some of those Escoffia recipes are really complicated and, you know, are for high society restaurants. And she wanted to kind of take that idea and show that you could do some of that at home on your own. She always said, on your own, if you don't have any help. But she herself always had help in the kitchen, and she always had her mm-hmm. assistance. So it was kind of a, a, a weird thing. But she just wanted to inspire some of that high-level cooking and high-level interest, I guess, in good ingredients. And uh, she developed her own, I guess, unusual way to present things. You know, that that was the, the Fanny Craddock twist. She was always adding food colouring or unusual garnishes or, or whatever to that. But at, at the core, um, her recipes always work.
0: OK, so I was going to ask that about the recipes, because you hear people say, no, they just didn't work, and people kind of poo-poo it all.
1: Yeah, I, I hear that all the time. And, you know, I guess it was one of the reasons I started um, started out with a, a blog, Cooking My Way Through Fanny Craddock's Recipes, you know there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds it's a, an endless journey through her through her cooking probably cooked so far near on 400 of her recipes and I haven't found one yet that hasn't worked um so either mm-hmm. I've I've been really unfortunate and just picked all the really good ones and um, or other people I, I guess are kind of looking at her recipes and uh, seeing something different I think sometimes uh, on tv some some things didn't work or she <laughs> forgot to tell you about a particular step the tv programs that she uh, she did were recorded as if they were live you know there was no retakes there was no edits if you watch them she whizzes through five or six recipes uh, as i said in in 15 20 minutes um, and she she kind of Sometimes, I, I can see anyway Sometimes that she forgets to, to, to tell you how to finish something off Or how to
0: do something But it may be that she just ran out of time Who, who knows But hence hence one of her popular expressions Of it, it's all in the booklet
1: Yeah, and it, it was such a clever thing Because, you know, she ultimately um, She knew that being on TV Was like a big advert for herself mm-hmm. And <laughs> she really just wanted you To enjoy watching her show But then buy all the products That she was promoting and associated with and one of those products were her cookbooks and and the booklets that came along with with every
0: series and she wrote them all herself didn't she and things like that she really yeah, you yeah. know took took pride in it she just didn't yeah. leave it to the bbc to no. come up with something no uh,
1: she she had them written into her contract she wasn't employed by the bbc but she had kind of individual contracts for for each tv series and the the contracts were to present the tv shows to to write the books uh, to design the books to take the photographs you know kind of everything i guess it's like a, a blogger um of today mm-hmm. uh fanny was doing it on screen really she also used it as an opportunity i guess to uh, include all the products that she was being paid separately to to promote in her recipes or you know on on screen. Uh, you'll constantly see her cooking in front of parkinson Cowan gas cookers. Um, And funnily enough, she had a a lifelong deal to promote them and everything that you see on screen, she brought with her from home.
0: Yeah. So from a production's point of view, I guess she was fairly low maintenance. Yeah. Even if she is a personality, wasn't low maintenance. (laughs) So,
1: you know, I I say she wasn't a BBC employee, so they just she had this contract and basically she would go off and do everything, turn up on the day, film the episode, film the series. And pack up and go home. And there was, there was no uh, fuss or nonsense for the BBC. They didn't have to supply any of the food or the equipment or whatever. They, they supplied the cameras and lights and sound. And suddenly they had a show and suddenly they had a series. And she made it very easy
0: for them. But, I mean, she did get a bit of a reputation for being hard to work with. It just seemed to me that, it's, well, she was hard to work with, but that's probably because she had a very fixed idea of what she wanted to do and that she didn't want to mess about.
1: Uh, I think there's different sides to it, so definitely that's part of it. A big part of it was that she was a woman in the BBC and the BBC was predominantly staffed by by men who were making the decisions and uh, producers, and even the women who were producers weren't, you know, housewives or, you know, kind of homemakers, you know, they were, they were career women, but women weren't really viewed that well so she she had her own ideas as a woman so that didn't go down very well at the BBC but also exactly you know she she didn't want to veer from that persona of Fanny Craddock so she didn't take direction well she didn't need it so you know she just wanted to turn up and do it she'd she'd written the thing she'd you know devised the whole series and she'd (laughs) done everything so why would anyone tell her uh, how to do it better. Mm-hmm. You know, she she kind of knew she was teaching them, if you like. Um, and she does come across sometimes as being quite brusque, as you say, and it is quite difficult. She needed some help on screen. The BBC weren't willing to pay for other people to be part of the the crew. You know, she just got a block contract. So she had these assistants that she worked with at home and who came on screen and they weren't allowed to speak because if they spoke, the BBC had to suddenly pay them as uh, contributors and presenters. So they look absolutely terrified. Probably they were terrified of her, but I think they were also terrified of accidentally speaking or accidentally (laughs) doing something that they should not and you know that tension comes across. I guess quite a lot, but I think that she was genuinely quite a difficult person. And you know, just delving into the the BBC archives, even from day one, you know, the the notes are that she was you know unpleasant, that she was uh, an unusual character, that she was hard to deal with. I think that part of that comes from I kind of view her as a, a bit of an entrepreneur. She never switched off. You know she mm-hmm. had all these fabulous careers but she was always thinking of new ideas and i think that she just couldn't understand why people weren't entirely fascinated with her ideas all the time and she got a bit frustrated with them uh, she tried to be charming and sometimes you can see it on screen she's trying to be be charming too she kind of wrinkles her nose a little bit and smiles at the camera and that's her thinking, oh, I've got to be charming now, and it just wasn't her natural, <laughs> her natural way. If you like, you know, she she just <laughs> thought, well, why do I have to do this? You know, someone had told her smile a bit more, so it, she she didn't tend to do what people told her. There was one part in the the archives that I found. Someone had said suggested that she wears different clothes because they didn't come across that well on on screen. Someone had written in saying that her flowery outfits were quite distracting, so she. Filmed the, uh, the next episode of the, that series um, Which I think is the one that you've seen with the muscles In a kind of black <laughs> pinafore outfit oh, yeah. And she wore it just deliberately to upset everyone Who'd commented on her her, her outfits <laughs> And, you know, she was like, you won't tell me what to do But I, I think she was a difficult character uh, I guess just to answer your question And uh, she, she was only interested in herself So um, she wasn't really interested in In you or your life or your issues or why you weren't there with that spatula at that particular time that she needed it You know, it was all about her So I guess if you got on the wrong side of her, what would I do? She developed, I guess, in in the press, this image of being that kind of nasty monster. I I think, as I said earlier, particularly after she died, it became very popular for celebs on these kind of talking heads programmes to come on and say, oh, yeah, she was was terrible, she was this, she was that. And it kind of developed into a a bigger thing than it was. But I think it's true that she was difficult to work with.
0: I guess the uh, infamous piece of her tv work that she did was the christmas special i watch it probably every every other christmas
1: just just every other christmas
0: <laughs> yeah something like that i didn't watch it this year but i've watched it so many times it's just quite a thing to behold we're going to describe it a bit but people might think we're uh exaggerating I have a feeling we won't be exaggerating. It's just quite a thing.
1: Yeah, the, there's no need to exaggerate it at all. You know, it's quite a colourful experience, I guess, to to watch in, in many ways. And there's five very short episodes and they're all, I think they're all fabulous. They're all a bit of a hoot, you know, and, you know, I watch them on many different levels. But if you just want to watch them and enjoy TV cooking and... Uh, get a glimpse into the world of Fanny Craddock then, it, it's a definitely a good place to start. I, I guess the background is that she, uh, at that time, her TV career was in the decline. They were originally broadcast um, on wet afternoons, midweek uh, on the BBC. They, they weren't primetime shows. They were just really quick kind of filler shows. She didn't put much effort into them. Uh, she even says on screen, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years uh, you all know how to make these cakes, why, why do I
0: need to show yeah, you again? Yeah, she seems a bit deflated, doesn't she? She's just like, oh, I'm doing this again. Again, she's,
1: she's really <laughs> aggravated by it. But despite all that, she, she produces some fabulous results and it's really entertaining, mm. really, really entertaining. And uh, she obviously didn't know as no one at that time knew that all these years later you know, 40-plus years later, we'd be sitting still watching these programmes. But they become a bit of a kind of cult viewing in themselves. But they're they're fabulous, but they don't sum up, I guess, what Fanny Craddock's TV career was like. They're a bit of a snapshot of her 70s career. She was in her 60s at the time and really fed up doing all these recipes again and again and again.
0: My favourite sort of Fannyism throughout those series is that it's money for old rope. She says it at least twice an episode, I would say.
1: Absolutely, and I guess, you know, it's part of her persona, her celebrity, you know, she had these sayings and she had a kind of magical way with words. And if you read any of her stuff as well as watch any of her stuff, um, she just has an intriguing way of talking or or writing and you're like, what is she talking about? It's money for old rope. What what does she mean?
0: She's not actually using the phrase the way it should be used.
1: No, no. It's complete... no. No, no. And, you know, she's just... For, for me, it's what makes her quite intriguing. And it's the same in her writing. You you can be reading it and think, that doesn't actually make any sense, but she didn't care. You know, it was entertaining mm-hmm. and it's funny. She was in on the joke. You know, I think sometimes people think that uh, she didn't realise people were laughing at her, but she she knew exactly what she was doing and she was laughing along too.
0: Yeah. and I mean, again, it's, it's another layer of, or another reason for having a persona is you weren't laughing at, at Phyllis, that's a real name. You are having a laugh at Fanny Craddock. It's two different people. Yeah, one absolutely. exists and one the one doesn't exist. Yeah. Can I ask you? Have you ever made the mincemeat omelette?
1: Have only once, and I never would make it again. It's just as horrible as it sounds. And the way she makes it, anyway, she says it has to be served wet, uh, so still, mm-hmm. you know, not cooked through. Uh, so it's kind of uh, quite a soggy omelette with mincemeat. Dusted heavily with ice and sugar, um, and just served as it is. She based it on an escoffier recipe for mincemeat omelet, and some of the oh, okay. some of the historic recipes kind of flambe the omelet afterwards and make it quite tasty. I guess she skipped all that, perhaps for for health and safety reasons in the in the studio, or perhaps because she ran out of time. We'll, we'll never know. But her version is is quite drab and. Not, not really one that I would rush to 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 have.
0: Mincemeat meat pancakes look okay though.
1: Yeah, our, our pancakes are brilliant. You know, good good honor. She did a, a 15 minute show just with ideas for using up mince meat.
0: What's the other one? Oh, she had a thing about um, small mince pies. Didn't she? <laughs> she hated them. She didn't approve. She hated <laughs> them.
1: She she felt it was too much work to to make all these little mince pies, and uh, she said that you NOE know, Men don't like them. Men like big pies, so why not just make a big pie? I guess she just wanted to do something different, so she made big, proper plate-sized ones and sliced them up. You know, they look much more appealing.
0: Has Fanny taught you in any way how to cook?
1: The basic recipes are, are really good, and things like her, her Swiss rolls or her cakes in particular, they're, they're all fabulous recipes and always work. Um, and then she overly garnishes them, and you know presents them in strange style. But you know that that was just her thing. And um, her her main idol, if you like, was Agnes Marshall. And. She loved her cookbooks and she loved her her ideas about selling things. And one of the things that she developed was uh, harmless vegetable food colourings that she added to quite legitimate things. But Fanny took the idea and added them to everything. And she started off with mashed potatoes, which she coloured green, and it became her thing. If you see some pictures of something that looks quite strange and, and bright green, it's usually mashed potatoes if Fanny's if made it. And she had different rules for different colours, so um, savoury things were, were green and sweet things were blue. So a lot of her cakes were uh, made with blue icing. See, blue is weird because... It- Food never blue. You know that. That's that's why <laughs> she did it. You know, this was you know just a few years, really, after the war when food was quite drab and boring and uh, didn't look all that appealing. To suddenly inject a bit of colour into it would have been quite shocking. And you know. She, she kind of got a name for it, but also when she was cooking in theatres and places like that, she'd want you to see the food. So
0: Yeah, if you have some beige, beige food on a white plate, it isn't really going to work necessarily.
1: Add in some blue food colouring and everyone can see it. So, you know, it's those kind of things. And the same thing happened on TV. So she started off in black and white. And then when colour TV came along, she thought, Do you know what, they're going to see my food at home. So let's add in even more food colouring. And it just kind of became her thing.
0: Had um, The Big Time happened, the show The Big Time, had that happened before that?
1: No, it was the year after, so that was 1976. So um, the the year after the the Christmas thing. And um, I guess it's the, the show that she's most often remembered for, even... Today, mm-hmm. you know, people yeah. people say how horrible she was to, to poor old Gwen Troke, the, the the Devon farm farmer's wife, you know, who he was on learning to cook for, for high society. And, but yeah, it's a, a show which comes back time and time again to almost haunt her, uh, and I think quite unfairly so.
0: In the 80s and 90s, there was always loads of clip shows because they, they were cheap to make, and that just kept coming up. I feel like I've seen it so many times. I went back and watched the kind of unedited version because that's available on YouTube. And I thought, you know what? That's not too bad. It doesn't doesn't seem that bad.
1: You know, Fanny's ideas of uh, doing things differently, I guess. So if you watch her, it's kind of, for people that haven't seen it, it's a show where she's kind of a mentor, I guess, to this... uh, Devon housewife, Gwen Troak, who's cooking a fabulous uh, menu for a a big dinner in London. So it's a kind of show that you might see today. It's a bit like The Great British Menu or X Factor or, or, you know, something like that, where ordinary people are trying to do extraordinary things and they get a bit of advice from the celebs. And, you know, Fanny... Kind of plays up to the cameras, and she produces her larger-than-life character. Uh She makes some controversial statements, but she's really quite helpful as well. And
0: Yeah, and fairly chari- really charismatic, I think. Yeah, so she, particularly in the kind of the main interview or the main piece, she's really charismatic and genuinely helpful. Yeah, and yeah. getting things out of her handbag to kind of you know to put notes on—it's really quite nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just didn't think it was too bad, and. Gwen Trunk, yeah. Was that was that the name of the yeah, that's right. contestant? Um, you know, her recipe was, I would say, and this is nothing against Gwen Trunk, but she was presenting a Delia Smith style menu to Fanny Craddock. Yeah. So Fanny Craddock is not gonna be impressed by that because there was no there's no theatre there. The food all fine. And she said all these things are fine. There's nothing wrong with any of these is she approaching it all wrong and that was really the only issue
1: that's it that's it and you know that that was her role she wasn't there to to say oh this all sounds fabulous thanks very much you know she wouldn't have appeared very much on on the show if Fanny Craddock had just said that that's great so she was there to offer some advice and to to help this poor ordinary housewife to do something a bit more special and uh do something a bit more in line with what Fanny Craddock herself would do. You know, that's what she was asked to do. But yeah, it's really not that bad. And um, I guess as you you delve more into the the story, the, those clip show memories and those clip shows are the bane of my life. But, you know, people who, who <laughs> never knew her suddenly talk about her uh, and pretend that they were viewing the show at the time. But at the time, it, it was quite a shocking show, but it wasn't as shocking as it is portrayed to be now and didn't mm-hmm. really... Uh, Raise the headlines that those clip shows say that it did uh, back then. The story goes that, that Fanny lost her... Contract at the BBC as a result of all the complaints about it, she simply didn't have a contract at the BBC to lose. So uh, you know that that in itself is is not true. It doesn't make for the best story. You know the the myth is a good story, but uh, the actual story is that she was being really helpful, and you know she she'd worked with Gwen Choke many years before. They knew that it would be an interesting combination. I guess the uh, the way that TV folk would talk about it today is they had they had chemistry. And uh, they, (laughs) you you know, they had a story working together. So they were put on, on on this big time show and they they did have chemistry and they did work really well together.
0: I mean, well, we've just, we've talked about so many sides of her, but um, I hope what's come across is that she's a a much more complex person than, than people might think. And she's certainly got an endearing side to her personality. Like I said, when I was reading the book, you know, I didn't want, you know it's a biographer so you know what's going to happen at the end (laughs) Um, spoiler and I just kind of didn't want to get to the end because you know everything she did was so entertaining and sometimes it was jaw-dropping or eye-rolling but she did it with such joie de vivre that you're just like oh it's fine because it's funny
1: yeah yeah absolutely and it it's interesting that you felt like that at the end of the book, you know, you were you were kind of wanting it to go on. And you can imagine how I felt doing the research, exactly the same, you know, everything that I found out about her, I just thought, I want to know more about that. I want to speak to her. Um, <laughs> you know, I want to find out the, the actual truth. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll never know, but she she certainly had a an interesting and varied life, an interesting and varied career. And, you know, her legacy just seems to go on and on. I, hopefully it's not just me that's endlessly fascinated with, with her and her life. But um, you can learn about her on so many levels and, and see a lot of her stuff. You know, I really hope that the BBC will put more of her old shows, older shows from the from the 60s um, up on iPlayer. Who, who knows? This year is the, the BBC's um, centenary year. They're celebrating 100 years. And uh, Fanny credit's already uh, featuring a little bit in some of their celebrations, so maybe they've got some
0: plans. I think from watching her her programmes, you can see that it's, it's the kernel of so many different kinds of those kind of magazine entertainment programmes. You can see how much they've adopted yeah, from her.
1: Absolutely, and and even the ones that she didn't make. So all the ideas that she bombarded the BBC with, um, and the BBC said, no, we'd, we'd never do that. You, know, you can see them today as well. You know, She was really, uh, I guess, ahead of her time.
0: Yeah, and if people want to go out there and see some clips of some... Fanny shows, or Fanny and Johnny shows, where are the best places to to find them?
1: So probably YouTube's your friend, you know, it's the place that you'll find most things. But if you're in the UK, then uh, the BBC iPlayer has all five Christmas episodes and the the cheese and wine party as well to to view there. Um, But I would urge people to to look back a bit more and, and dig out some of those uh, shows from the fifties. So whether that's the the Pathy News one that I spoke about, or uh, mm-hmm. the performance from the Royal Albert Hall, and, uh, some of the uh, I guess documentaries. The the BFI have a, a documentary that was made in the nineteen fifties of them at home, and uh, it's quite an interesting one to to go and watch. It's quite controversial. Ah, I didn't know too. that
0: one was still available. Yeah, I'll so watch that. yeah,
1: there's certainly a lot to to look out for. Her chat show appearances are, are mostly on on YouTube as well. She yeah. she she has a lot of fun on Wogan and
0: uh no, the Wogan one's great. Yeah, probably I encourage anybody
1: <laughs> to go out and watch, she, watch she, the Wogan one. She thought she was back. You know, she thought, wow, this is great, an audience wants to see me and it really comes across.
0: Yeah, and of course
1: there's your blog. Of course. And yeah.
0: The good work you do <laughs> on social media, especially at Christmas time.
1: <laughs> yeah, so there is lots to discover. So My my blog and my social media, uh, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, whatever, uh, is handily named in the same way as the book. So it's all Keep Calm and Fanny On. So if you search for that, you'll, you'll find me somewhere. And you're talking about Fanny Craddock and retro food and TV cooking endlessly. So if you want to hear more about it, then that's the place to be.
0: Thanks again, Kevin. Just to reiterate, Kevin's social media has the handle Keep Calm and Fanny On whether that's Twitter or Instagram. It's also the name of his blog. His book of the same name is published by Phantom Books, and I can't recommend it highly enough, it's great. And there is, it's all in the booklet, which we mentioned, focusing upon Fanny and Johnny's Christmas shows and cookbooks. Information about all these things are in the show notes. Subscribers, there are five Easter eggs. Five whole sections I had to cut out for time, because we whittered on for ages. Go to britishfoodhistory.com to discover them, Subscribers get access to my Easter eggs page, and there's loads of things in there. Deleted scenes, extra bits, uncut interviews, and there's also blog posts that are just for subscribers. You can find those on the blog just by searching for the keyword term premium content. There's even an extra mini season on there that I did between seasons two and three. Go and check it out. And of course, go to the website to keep tabs on all the other things that I'm doing, including new blog posts, of course. A subscription, if you want to start one, is just three pounds a month. Everything I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, you can treat me to a one-off virtual coffee or pint. But there's no pressure, of course. Instead, please like, subscribe, tell a friend or two, and leave comments and ratings. They're really important, and I'll be eternally grateful. As usual, if you have any questions, comments, queries about anything from this episode, or any episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact via my email at neil at britishfoodhistory.com or on Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram at doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. Somebody emailed me a while ago about a subject for a future episode and I've taken them up on it. So drop me an email if you've got any suggestions. I just might pick it up and run with it. I shall see you next time. Have a good week. Cheerio.